only tells me about one. And so sometimes that's dangerous. Three. Three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we were on uh, verse uh, 6 and 7. And if you remember right, we had just read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Uh, what was the reason for reading 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Why did we go there? Say that again, Coral. Okay, good. Uh, Paul says that in the end times, when things get worse and worse, then there will be heresies and there will be departures from the faith that will include those who say, don't eat, don't drink, don't marry. And uh, Paul says, now all these things were made by God and given by God to be enjoyed and that they are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And by the way, welcome, Marcus. Glad to have you two here with us today. Marcus used to lead music in here for us uh, when we met over the modular um, years ago when we were still in Psalms. So it's good to see you folks back here. Yeah, nice visit here. All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 4 is really letting us know that the message that we're seeing in Ecclesiastes is the same in the New Testament. And that was the point I was trying to leave you with last week, is that sometimes when we go to the Old Testament, especially to the book of Ecclesiastes, people leave us with the idea that, hey, this is outdated. It's not in accord with New Testament revelation. It's uh, Old Testament, it's the past, uh, it's, by the way, a man who is a pessimist, who is bitter, who uh, does not believe anymore. You get a lot of commentaries and uh, messages that say that about Ecclesiastes. And what we find out is the book of Ecclesiastes is in tune with exactly what the rest of Scripture is saying on these matters. And so as we turn and look at verse 7 today and look at it a little bit more, remember here we have these imperatives. And we had just mentioned before we went to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, we'd read a quote from uh, Sidney Grydness uh, about how he mentioned there that we have this sense of urgency, that we are, it's a wake-up call, that there's no time uh, to waste, that we're to stop complaining, we're to stop nursing anger, we're to stop brooding about our problems, we're to get over our anxieties, and do exactly what God tells us to do here through Solomon. In verse 7, go. That means do it right now. Go. It means get this thing started. It's an imperative. It's a command. Eat. The second command. Eat your bread in happiness. And the third command. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your work. So we start drinking wine now? We're not going to get into that one today. I'm not, this is not a command for you to go out and drink wine. So you can go drink water. <laughs> That's not to say that drinking wine is a sin. It's just saying that uh, uh, perhaps in our day and age and in the things that we know, that perhaps it's something we may, might not want to indulge in or at least not regularly. But uh, that uh, the idea here is to enjoy that which God has given and we'll come back to the, that statement there at the end of verse 7, for God has already approved your works. But notice further. 
let your, pardon? I like verse 8. You like verse 8, okay. Let your clothes be white. <laughs> Tom showed up in his, all right? His is the color of duty. And uh, here, white is the color of uh, comfort. It's the idea of celebration and comfort. That uh, was the reason why people wore white in ancient times. And let, not, uh, and let not oil be lacking on your head. And that's fragrant oil that reminds us of hospitality, like in Psalm 23, verse 5, where he anoints your head with oil. And it's a reminder of unity and blessing in Psalm 133 and of gladness in Isaiah 61, verse 3. And then notice verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. So here is, as we come down to it, Solomon's command to enjoy wedded bliss. The idea of being married to one woman and that we are to enjoy. Now, it's interesting to notice here that he does not say here, enjoy your wife. The object of enjoy is not wife, but life. Enjoy your life with. You know, sometimes we get a little bit off on this. Now, that does not mean that spouses ought not to enjoy one another. You can go to other passages of Scripture and find that very clearly. But this passage of Scripture is talking about enjoying God's gift of life together. And so it's an enjoyment that both are to experience. It's an enjoyment that we enter into together. And this is a command. This is not an option. This is a command. Yes. Yes, Don. Right. Enjoy that life all the days of your fleeting, your vain life. The idea it's short. All right? It's a short amount of time. And the idea here is that you don't have much time. I mean, talk to, to Kent Richardson about that. All right? I mean, just about. Mm-hmm. Right. We had 40 and it was not enough. Right, exactly. And see, Marvin's wife passed away from cancer a long time ago. 25 years ago. 25 years ago. And see, we never know how much time we have. And the point is that we, as husbands and wives, then are to enjoy life together while we have the opportunity. And Solomon reminds us. He says, your life is short. You don't know how much time you have, so you better enjoy it now. And uh, so often today, we're all going our own directions. And we don't have the time that we ought to take in making certain that we enjoy life together. I enjoy every time we get a trip. And uh, I've got several trips coming up here, two of them without Barb, but I, thankfully I've got one of them with her. And uh, so we'll be heading up to Modesto for Thanksgiving Day. And uh, I look forward to that because we get away from all the phones, we get away from all the computers. I can't work on the computer while I'm driving, right? <laughs> At least I shouldn't, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I'm not going to try. Yeah, especially when I'm seeing double. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if I'm seeing double, I'd keep one eye on the road and one eye on the computer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we just need that time to be able to enjoy life together, to see things together, stop along the way. We like to go to the Big Bear Diner up the road there. 
and it's a kind of 1950s type of uh, restaurant you go into and good food and, and we just enjoy going in there. That's one of the things we enjoy doing together. And so we get to fulfill three of these all at once, you see. Go, actually four. We're going, we're eating, we're drinking, and we're enjoying life together. So a trip like that allows us the opportunity to fulfill all four imperatives. So what are you doing? All right. See, we've got to find some way to get at this and do it. And, and we have to remember that this is a gift of God and something that he has given. Now, it's interesting because in the ancient Near East, this type of uh, uh, description of what life is all about was found even outside the Bible. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh that was written around 2000 BC says it this way, Thou Gilgamesh, let full be thy be belly, make thou merry by day and by night. Of each day make thou a feast of rejoicing, day and night dance thou and play. Let thy garments be sparkling fresh, thy head be washed, bathe thou in water. Let thy spouse delight in thy bosom, for this is the task of mankind. Now you'll notice there, as I've got it on the top of your notes there on page 70, that you could write in there the, the verses that are parallel. Verse 7 is parallel to the first section of four lines. Verse 8 is parallel to the middle two lines. And verse 9 is parallel to the last two lines. And so as you look at that, you can see the same thing there. Now, it's not that Solomon borrowed from Gilgamesh. He's speaking independently because they understood that these were the things that comprised life. But there is something missing from the epic of Gilgamesh. And that is the fact that uh, work is mentioned in our text and not in Gilgamesh's. Notice as you go on, it says in verse 10, or actually in the verse, end of verse 9, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then notice verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh is missing that. And that's something that's very important in Ecclesiastes. It's a key element of what God has given, and work forms a significant aspect of, a, of the God-given joys that we have. It's not just that work is something that we do in order to put food in our mouths. Work is part of what God designed us to do. Work is what... Uh, we are able to do so that we can share and meet the needs of others. Uh, work is a spiritual exercise according to scripture, not a secular exercise. So whatever job we have, whatever work we do, whatever vocation we have, we need to pursue that with the idea of glorifying God through that, being obedient to God through that, and using that as God gives us opportunity to minister to others. I've given you a list of things there that could be said about a biblical view of work. First of all, the dignity of labor is part of God's design from the time of creation. Way back in Genesis 2.15, he uh, had Adam and Eve keeping the garden, working the garden, and uh, guarding it and taking care of it, even before the fall. And secondly, it's the, there's the necessity of work in a fallen world that is talked about, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12. And then the essentiality of the cycle of work and rest. God designed both work and rest. 
we shouldn't be all work and we shouldn't be all rest. We've got to have the proper balance. Then the spirituality of work that's guided by the Spirit of God. And if you notice there, I've got as many passages in the New Testament as from the Old about the Holy Spirit's role in what work we do. And then the community for which work provides is an element that's talked about in both Testaments. And then the profitability of labor. And then the prosperity that results from labor with God's blessing. And so as we look at it, there is a very clear theology of work. There's a, a large foundation called the Kern Family Foundation, multi-billion dollar foundation, that has as their goal training and teaching people, churches, seminaries, Bible colleges, how to develop a proper work ethic based upon scripture whereby we realize that whatever business we do, whatever we do, is in accord with God's will and that it is God's will. So those of you who are in business are in no less a ministerial opportunity, no less a spiritual labor than those who are pastors or seminary professors or Bible college professors. You also have a ministry through that work that you have. It's a God-given ministry. And it is to be done under God's will, with God's approval, and it will, be, it will come with God's blessing. There's no dichotomy, you see, in the way Scripture approaches life. It's not that we say, well, this is practical and this is not, or this is, or, or as often we say, well, this is practical and this is theology. If it's not theology, it's not practical. In other words, if it's not according to God, then what's the worth of it, Right? So it's, and there's no such thing really in the Christian life as dividing the secular from the sacred. All that we do as his people is sacred, right? That's why we must follow ethical procedures in the businesses we do have and the labor we perform. Joe? That's right. And part is because we glorify God or we don't glorify God by those things we do. And we're to glorify God in whatever we do. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 10, 31? It was mentioned in the memorial service yesterday as well. You know, we're to glorify God in whatever we do. Whether it's ditch digging, whether it's serving burgers, whether it's mopping a floor, whether it's building a house, uh, whether it is uh, preaching or teaching or whatever it may be. We're to do everything to the glory of God. Pardon? Even dying is to be done to the glory of God. Tim? And that, that was Grudem's thesis this summer in the book that we went over. Not only can you bring glory to God in your daily work habits and work ethic, but with the fruits of your labor, you can minister and Amen. advance God's kingdom with, with the prophets and so forth. That's right. And that's exactly what we studied this past summer in uh, Grudem's book, Business for the Glory of God. And that that's, has to do with all of us. It's not just, you know, sometimes we look at that and say, oh, well, that's just talking about businessmen. No, it's talking about anyone who has any work or anything to do with business. Every one of us interacts with business. I mean, where do we get our food? Where do we get our clothes? Where do we get our houses? 
Uh, where do we get our cars? Where do we get the gasoline for our cars? All these things. We're involved in all those things. And it has to all be done according to the glory of God. So as we look at that, it comes back then to where verse 7 said, at the end, for God has already approved your works. In other words, these things have already received God's stamp of approval. We don't have to stop and say, oh, I, I can eat this if it's God's will. God's will. I can drink this if it's God's will. I can, I can uh, enjoy life with my wife or with my husband if it's God's will. Or I can uh, work if it's God's will. No, they're all God's will. He's already approved. We've already received the approval form. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. And it's right here in Scripture. It's approved. And it says already. Approved already. That's a phrase there that means from even before time. It goes back to the time of creation. This is the way God designed it all. God made us this way. Work was part of that which is even before the fall. The family, the husband and wife were something even before the fall. Eating and drinking were something that took place even before the fall. These were unfallen activities, unfallen relationships, and God is saying, I want you to continue with those even though you're fallen. But now we have a harder time doing it to his glory, don't we? Because our sin gets in the way. So we have been approved, and it's not stopping to say, well, I've got to get God's approval first. Here it is. It's been given. Now, these six enjoyments, it's, it's fascinating, represent advantages that respond to the question with which the book opened. Turn back with me to Ecclesiastes 1.3. Ecclesiastes 1.3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Remember that question? Right at the beginning. Solomon asked that question, and then it appears like he leaves it for a while because he talks, starts talking about how nothing changes. Then he talks about how he seeks uh, work uh, accomplishments, education, and pleasure to try to find out what the will of God is and, and what he's to do in life. But as we go through the book, over and over again, he keeps coming back to this theme, and the theme gets more emphatic each time that we are to enjoy exactly what God has given, the gifts of God. And so these six enjoyments then, in 9, 7 through 9, represent the advantages. Here are the advantages of life under the sun. Here are the advantages of labor under the sun. These are gifts of God, and we do them according to his will. Uh, this verse 10 that we've already mentioned briefly here takes up the thought that we had back in verses uh, 4 through 6 and then it anticipates the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapters 11 and 12. And as you look back at verses 4 through 6, remember, for whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. And it says, for the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. And verse 6, indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. And it picks that up and says, well, this is what is to be done. Under the sun. This is our allotment. This is our share. The word for share there is the idea of allotment. It's that which is uh, our inheritance, our assignment. Okay? So we have that, and it's right here in what we're to enjoy. 
That is what we are to enjoy now. You see, when we die, we can no longer fulfill these imperatives under the sun. We go to a better place, but that's not what Solomon wants to emphasize here. When he seems to ignore immortality and life after death here, don't get the idea that he is ignoring it or he doesn't know about it or doesn't understand it. He's focused on the point that God has given us a gift to be used now and there's only one time in which we can use those gifts and that's in this life under the sun. There is no other opportunity. And once we're gone, that opportunity to go, to eat, to drink, to enjoy, to labor is gone. It's finished. This gift will no longer be enjoyed, no longer be exercised. We move on to a different gift in a different place with different standards and with different conditions. Sidney Greidner says, if we do not enjoy God's gifts, we dishonor the giver. It's not just that we disobey his commands, it's that we do him dishonor. Some of you are looking forward to gifts at Christmas time. <laughs> and you'll be very conscious of whether you dishonor the giver or you get them upset by the way you react to the gift. Well, we have greater gifts to be concerned about how we react and how we respond in the light of our giver of that gift. And that's what God's given us in this life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's like a summary of Ecclesiastes. And it's basically saying this, every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. I was talking with Kent yesterday. He said that on Monday morning, he said he got up about 6 a.m. and went in to where Karen was. She was in the hospital bed that they brought in. And he said he knew the time was short, but he was so thankful for each day that came. And he did not know what Monday was going to bring but he was going to be thankful for whatever that day brought. And he, his big prayer had been that Karen would not suffer and that when she went home to be with the Lord, it would be peacefully, quietly, comfortably. And he said, God answered every prayer. He says it was such a blessing to see that. Each day is a gift. And you talk to that family and you find out that they treated each day as a gift for the last eight or nine months because they knew that the time was short. And one of the things that he mentioned several months ago in the midst of this was that he was sorry that he could not see that aspect of life as clearly before. And his exhortation to those of us on the elder board basically was, gentlemen, you need to enjoy every moment you have and recognize what days God gives you because we never know when they're going to come to an end. So what will you enjoy about today as a gift That's of God? I love that song, One Day at a Time. One Day at a Time, yes. And we've got to enjoy one day at a time. Yeah. Not just face it. Not just get through it. But enjoy. Yes? (laughs) 
I think that there's both aspects there. I think he is definitely revealing to us the character of God, God's desire, God's will, God's gentleness, God's grace, God's mercy. And it is in a time when things are in turmoil in his kingdom, in Israel, uh, because of his own disobedience to God, because of his own foolishness, because of his own lack of following the wisdom God had given him. Uh, the country was in trouble, and he knew what kind of person his son was to whom this kingdom would be given. And uh, he was well aware, I think the book of Ecclesiastes points that out, he was well aware that everything he spent his life to build up could be destroyed by his son in a very brief time, and it was. And within a year of Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided, and uh, no longer was it one united kingdom. It became two. And they were divided in their allegiance to God. They were confused. They were disoriented. And I think that Solomon realizes that as he's writing this book. And I think he feels that, that one of the things he can do is to pass on the lessons he's learned and to try to get people to understand them as a hope that maybe this would be uh, the means of future recovery of his own nation and his own people. Question? It's because God is greater, isn't he? Yes. And so when we don't enjoy this life, no matter how difficult or how good it is, we're not showing our trust in the Lord. No, no more despairing and have hopelessness. Or I right. seem to live like we have hopelessness like the rest of the world. All right. And it's because we start walking by sight rather than by faith, right? Yes. So we need to watch this. And I, I just ask you this. Is, I say this as much to myself as to any of you. How do I approach each day? And do I approach each day as a gift from God and enjoy the gifts he's given? I mean, that, that's something we need to take time for. We need to really think about. Now, we get into life's inescapable ironies next in verses 11 to 12. Five ironies are listed in verse 11. The swift might not win the race. So those of you out there running every day, remember, that still might not win the race. The warriors might not win the battle. If you're in uniform, there will be lost battles. The wise might not obtain food or earn a living. Just because you've got a great education doesn't mean you'll have a job during this depression. Right? The discerning might not gain wealth. Uh, you might make the wrong choices in the stock market. You might make the wrong choices in just everyday care of what you have. The skilled might not find favor. Skill may be out of faith. These are five of life's ironies. And they remind us that it is not we who accomplish these things. All of the things that we enjoy and value, wisdom, victory, food, wealth, favor, influence, and success are really all from God. 
And sometimes we celebrate it as though it was our accomplishment. But we could not have accomplished it if God had not given us the opportunity, given us the strength, given us the health, given us the time. So we need to realize that. And we need to thank God for all these things. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. And this is one of the themes of Thanksgiving we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes. Is that we have nothing that God has not given. And all we have belongs to him. And it goes on here to even talk about the concepts of time and chance in verse 11. I, I again saw under the sun that the race is not the swift, etc. And he, down at the end he says, for time and chance overtake them all. And that word for chance is not the idea of uh, something that happens by luck or fortune. It's the idea of a happening, an event. And it's usually a negative concept. This word, in fact, in the Hebrew is only found two places. And both of them are in a context with Solomon. It's found here and in 1 Kings uh, chapter, uh, I've got it written down here. 1 Kings chapter 5 verse 4. All right, And so it, it's the idea of that what we usually call an accident or a misfortune. And uh, in 1 Kings 5.4, some translate it literally as an evil occurrence. And we never know what's going to happen. This is the idea of those disadvantageous situations that come in life. And we do not have any idea when these ironic move, uh, moments are going to come upon us. No idea at all. And notice the figure that's used here of verse 12. The fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. <laughs> that's the picture. Do you ever feel that way? You know, King Hezekiah, when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, felt trapped. But it was the king of Assyria that went back home and wrote an inscription in his throne room that said that he trapped the king of Judea in his palace like a bird in a cage. All right, because he understood what it did to Hezekiah. And the reason these are chosen here to talk about this, this point is the idea that uh, we have no control over them. And we can be trapped in those moments that we're not prepared for and don't know exactly how to respond to. And when we do, we need to realize that this is in God's will and in God's timing. And as we talk about that timing, and the reason it's called an evil time, is because it, it, it's always a disadvantageous thing. And if you notice in the notes that I gave you, uh, I highlighted this one point here. Trouble and death never come at a good time. Uh, look at Luke 12, 16 to 21. What happened to the man there? What was he getting ready to do? He was getting ready to retire, wasn't he? He had his barns built, he had his crops stored, and he said what? Soul, take your ease. I'm all set up. I can sit back in the rocking chair and retire. And what happened? God said, tonight your soul is required of you. <laughs> yeah. It's because he was thinking he, he had his plan for his life all planned out, but God had a different plan, right? Man plans, but God disposes, right? God ordains. You know, when we think about this, when it comes our time to go, there may be chores, 
in the house that are not completed. There may be, there will always be something left incomplete, always something that will be absent or lost or never even started. That's what Solomon is talking about here. And so if we spend all our time fretting about those things, we're not going to enjoy the gifts that he's given us now. Yes, plan. Yes, try to do things. Be intentional the way Karen was intentional. But remember that even with all the intentions you have and all the plans you make, the chances are that when it's time to go home to be with the Lord, there'll be many things undone. And so the question comes, what do I leave behind that's undone? But what more do I leave behind that are memories of uh, service, of ministry, and of love, and the enjoyment of life together for those who are left behind? Longman concludes that human inability drives Paul to divine grace, while Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, ends up in frustration. Is that what's going on here? I don't see a frustration here at all. If there's a frustration, it's a temporary frustration. Because we notice that Solomon speaks of, first of all, a conscious awareness of the Creator's presence in chapter 12, verse 1. He talks about the reality of God's future judgment in chapter 11, verse 9 and 12, 14. And he talks about the return of man's spirit to God himself in chapter 12, verse 7. Solomon is not a man with his vision limited to under the sun. He does see beyond the sun. He goes beyond that. And as we move to this uh, final point here, the fact that God will judge the good as well as the bad, doesn't that tell us that he's going to make a distinction not just under the sun but beyond the sun, between the two? The last verses are a lesson from history. And wisdom is mentioned seven times in these last verses. It's talking about an illustration of wisdom. It's talking about a city, a city which has large siege works. It's a small city, but with large siege works built against it. And this word for siege works is the same word used for net in which the fish is trapped in one of the earlier verses. And it's, I think it's purposefully used to show that whether we're talking about individuals or whether we're talking about a city, there's a point of possibility of being trapped by circumstances. And the context here talks about a real event. Solomon says he saw this in verse 13. He experienced this. He knows about it firsthand. Some commentators say that maybe it should be translated in a sense he might have delivered in verse 15. But the context favors an actual event. There are four conclusions that are reached out of the story as you read through it. The first conclusion is that wisdom proves superior to might. The second is that people do not always respect or honor wisdom. The man who was wise was soon forgotten. And isn't that a theme we've also seen throughout Ecclesiastes of being forgotten? Even the righteous are forgotten once they're gone. All right? People do not always respect or honor wisdom. Third, powerful people can make it difficult to listen to the voice of wisdom. They can shout down the voice of wisdom. And fourth, no matter how superior wisdom might be, one foolish act by one sinner can destroy everything that the wise have accomplished. 
That's a reality of life. A very difficult reality of life. Look at Solomon, his kingdom that he spent his time building through God's wisdom and then partially destroying by his own foolishness is going to be virtually lost by his son within a year of his father's death. He knows exactly what's going on. And he knows what's going, how it's going to happen. What are the words the wise heard in quiet, quietness in verse 17? What is meant by that? Does it mean words being spoken in quietness or calm? Or does it refer to hearing words by sitting quietly and listening? I think it's the first. When we look at the parallel to it there, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools, compare the two. The wise speak softly. Remember Teddy Roosevelt? Speak softly and carry a big stick, right? Yeah, he had at least part of this figured out, right? Speaking softly. And sometimes the wise are not listened to, but the way that Solomon's talking about this is that we need to hear the quiet words of the wise rather than listening to the shouting of rulers. And I think sometimes here, this is a perfect illustration even in our own day, Let's not listen, listen to the bombast of politicians and orators. Let's listen to the still, small voice of God. What has Solomon done here in this chapter? Derek Kidner says that Solomon has made his case against our self-sufficiency. Indeed, he has finished his work of demolition the site has been cleared. He can turn to building and planning. What's he talking about? He's destroyed everything that we might rely upon and trust other than God. Right? He's destroyed any concept we have that we're in control of our lives. He's destroyed any concept we have that we're in control of the time of our death. He's destroyed the concept that says, oh, I live a righteous life. Therefore, you know, I'm going to live a long life. Uh-uh. He's already told us that sometimes the righteous live a shorter time than the unrighteous. Everything that we would look to to walk by sight, he has gradually been going along and removing each one and casting it down and breaking it right in front of us. Why is he doing that? He is doing that because now in the last chapters, we'll start next Sunday, Lord willing, with chapter 10. He's going to tell us the solution to these things. How then do we walk by faith? And he begins by talking about being sensible in chapter 10. Being bold in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Being joyful. No, see, he's not through with that theme yet. He's hit that many times. Being joyful in chapter 11, 7 through 10. And being godly in chapter 12. This is where he's headed. This is very systematic. From start to finish, Solomon has very carefully arranged his argument, arranged the speech, arranged this discourse to teach you and I something about learning how to place our faith in that which is beyond the sun, looking beyond the sun, even while living under the sun. If we just look around us and we depend on what we see, we're not going to have our faith in the right place, right? 
I trust that as you spend this coming week and the week before Thanksgiving, is this coming week, thinking about the things you can be thankful for, that you'll go back to verses 7 through 9 here and, and 10 in chapter 9, and looking at those four verses and thanking God for his gifts. But I hope that we all learn to not just thank God for these, because we need to enjoy those things. Some time ago, our son came into our house and he saw a gift that he'd given to me for Christmas years ago. And it has never been opened. Still has a cellophane around it. And he looked at that and he said, Dad, he says, what are you doing? <laughs> and I jokingly said, well, I'm, I'm saving it until it becomes an antique. <laughs> you, know? you know, we think about that and we say, okay, now that's, that's the type of thing that we're not supposed to do, right? But sometimes that's exactly what we do with what God's given us. We've received it, all in order, beautiful, wrapped in cellophane. We see all it contains, but we have not yet used the gift. And yet we say we're thankful. How can we be thankful for a gift that we've not used? How can we be thankful for a gift that we've not put to work? So spend this week, these two weeks before Thanksgiving, obeying the imperatives of 7 through 10, so that when Thanksgiving comes, we can truly be thankful for the gifts God's given because we have actually experienced their goodness and his mercy. Right? That's bound prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything that you've given to us. And Lord, we, we mean that from our heart and soul. Lord, without you, we have nothing. And we know that you've used this book to help wake us up, to make us realize that you have given us things far beyond comprehension, that you've worked in our lives in ways that are, are above and beyond anything that we could even think or expect or imagine. And yet, Lord, sometimes we just sit around holding them and never allowing them to work in our lives, never allowing ourselves to enjoy your gifts because we're so busy trying to do things ourselves. Help us, Lord, to get the right perspective on life under the sun so that we might rightly understand and look forward to the even greater joys of life beyond the sun, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Captain. Go downstairs. <laughs>